welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Abstract. This is episode 67 which is quite fitting because our guest today is actually from Toronto. And that was the last year in the 20th century when the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. So going to start with a quick little burn, but then we're going to move straight on to the science because that's why we're here today. Without further ado, let me welcome Tina Felfelli onto the show. Tina, how's it going? Good. How are you, Jeremy? Good. I hope you're not too offended by that opening remark. I did laugh a little bit. Okay, great. I don't think either of us are really hockey fans uh, to any <laughs> any sufficient degree to be offended. But in any event, I do want you to tell me uh, what you're doing here, how you got here, and what do you do? Okay, well, thank you and hello to everybody who's listening. I'm Tina Felfelli, as you said. I'm a resident physician in ophthalmology. So I study anything involving the eyeballs, whether that's medical or surgical management of eye diseases. Currently, I'm in the Department of Ophthalmology and Vision Sciences at University of Toronto. At the same time, I'm doing a PhD in ClinEpi at the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation at Dalla School of Public Health at University of Toronto. And this is part of a integrated physician scientist training program. So I do the two in order to become a physician scientist. Mm-hmm. To tell you a little bit about how I got here, uh, I did my undergraduate studies in Bachelor of Science at Western University in London, Ontario, uh, followed by medical school at University of Toronto. And more recently, I decided to follow a PhD degree during my residency. I'm a Vanier Scholar. I recently received a Finding Blindness Canada Clinician Scientist Emerging Leader Award, which I'm very proud of. I've also written a book called the Toronto Guide to Clinical Ophthalmology. And this is a textbook that's used in the medical students curriculum at University of Toronto. And then outside of all of this, my research involves population-based studies, economic evaluations, prediction models, and everything involving eyes, retinal diseases, and uveitis. And I'm really passionate about evaluation of healthcare delivery within the field of ophthalmology and medicine in general. So really, my hope is to bring the two worlds of health services research and biomedical research together in order to better understand patient outcomes and improve patient care. So you've pretty much done it all at this point. You could say that, but, you know, (laughs) trying trying to follow what I'm passionate about. For sure. And how did you become passionate about ophthalmology? Like what drives you in this field? What actually drove you to it and what do you get out of it? Yeah, believe it or not, I actually entered medical school not knowing much about ophthalmology or any surgical specialties. I was initially interested in another field, which is also amazing, um, geriatrics, because most of my exposure was working at nursing homes and working with the elderly population. And throughout medical school, I got exposed to various subspecialties and all subspecialties in medicine have their own unique flavor. But ultimately, your goal is to work with patients and advocate for patient care And if you're interested in research, various subspecialties have research opportunities. I got involved in ophthalmology early on when I met a mentor in the area. I really uh, fell in love with uh, the type of people that were in ophthalmology. And that Mm -hmm. was initially what drew me to it. I met amazing patients and the operating room experiences where you see a patient who comes in 
they've lost their vision and then they come out of the OR or operating room and they regain their vision and they can see their family members again. And that was something I was never going to forget. That's magic. So that really drew me to the specialty for sure. And then the research is amazing. The type of technology that we use with our surgical management, the imaging devices we use, it's top of the line. It's super technologically advanced. We're some of the best specialties in terms of using AI, artificial intelligence in a lot of our patient care and telemedicine. So that was super exciting. So I knew that if I was going to pursue a clinician scientist or physician scientist route, ophthalmology was going to be an amazing field to be a part of. So if you're going into a career where you're going to be both a clinician and a researcher, presumably the field of ophthalmology is in some kind of transitional state or it's continually developing? Like how, how long has this field been around? How long have we been studying the eye in this way? And what kind of period is ophthalmology in right now in terms of its development? Yeah, for sure. Well, ophthalmology, like any other field of medicine, you, you can kind of look at the ancient Greeks and you see kind of writings about the anatomy of the eye and kind of what their speculation was of what the eye looked like back then and what the lens of the eye looked like and drawings of how the first cataract extractions or lens removals from the eye were done back in the day. And so it's been around. I would say in terms of eye diseases, of course, people have had cataracts, glaucoma, renal degenerative diseases, etc. In the more recent years, uh, and I think ophthalmology has been kind of the forefront of some of those things that technologies that I've mentioned, but we also highly just as a specialty rely on technology. So we do a lot of microsurgery. So all of our surgeries are done under microscopes. So we're constantly yeah. relying on advances in technology to be able to better assess and examine eyes. And then also things like intraocular lenses, artificial lenses that we use when we put in the eye after we do cataract surgery. A lot of those technologies kind of been the forefront of things that we can do at a micro level to the eye, the microsurgery. So that's super exciting. And on a regular basis in our clinics, we use imaging all the time. So things like OCT imaging, which is a non-invasive imaging of the eye, we use on a daily basis on every single patient. OCT stands for Optical Coherence Tomography. It's a non-invasive imaging test. And it actually uses light waves to capture extremely fine resolution cross-sectional pictures of the eye. So we're talking a thousand times smaller resolution than a millimeter. And it's a very safe and effective way of just seeing the back of the eye immediately. And we rely on that technology on a regular basis. I love the fact that we use our eyes to see, but for the longest time, one of the only things we couldn't see was the inside of the eye. It's like, it's almost like a, a sick joke. Yes. You know, the fact that we can actually access the microstructures of the inside of the eye to kind of the rods and cones level at this point with some of the imaging that we have is astonishing. So you've already dropped a few different terms. We, we got lens, we've got rods and cones. Before we move forward, there are actually two things I want to define. One of them is the difference between optometry and ophthalmology, because I know I've been confused about this historically. And then I want to dive into a bit of the anatomy of the eye before we get into the nitty gritty of your research and the entire eye as a whole. So let's start with the differentiation between optometry and ophthalmology. Let's define it. Yes. So that's a fantastic question. So optometrists and ophthalmologists are best friends. We work together to take care of our patients. I like to think of optometrists as the first line access to eye care. 
the main difference between optometry and ophthalmology is that they see general diseases involving the eye. They, they're involved in routine care for patients from various age groups, but they don't involve themselves in surgery or any sort of uh, procedures, uh, advanced procedures that involve the eye. Optometry has a separate entry of school and program uh, specialists train in caring for the eye. I kind of like to think of them as the family physicians of the eye. Uh, and then any sort of managements that involve medication, systemic medications, surgical management procedures, they then work collaboratively with ophthalmologists who have done medical school training, have done a residency, which is a five-year surgical and medical training in diseases involving the eye, and they refer their patients to ophthalmologists. Uh, and then we work to then take care of those patients who have more advanced uh, diseases. Thank you for clearing that up. Much appreciated. Now I feel confident to move forward and talk about what's going on inside of our eye and maybe surrounding. I, I, I want to get a clear picture of the environment of the eye. I know it's embedded in my skull. What are the key structures of the eye that we're going to need to know in order to discuss your research in more detail throughout the rest of our discussion today? So we kind of think of the eye as a sphere structure, the round eyeballs that we have, and we have obviously the external structures of the eye, and then we have the internal structures of the eye. What I'm going to focus on today is actually more the internal uh, and anything involving the ocular structures themselves. You obviously have structures within the orbit as, as well. So the extraocular muscles, you have the fats within the orbit, um, the bony structures of the orbit, etc. But I'll focus What's on the, the orbit. So the orbits are the hollow structures within the skull of the bony, uh, bony parts of the face that encase the eyeball. The eyeball is actually encased by then fatty uh, structures and extraocular muscles that protect the eyeballs. And then we have the eyelids and et cetera that also protect the eyeball from the external factors as well. Okay. The eyeball itself, we can actually, when we kind of think of the intraocular structures, we actually think of it into two different specific segments. So we usually divide them up into the anterior segment and then the posterior segment of the eye. And that really refers to the front part of the eye, just to make it easy, or the back of the eye. Mm -hmm. The front okay. part of the eye, which is actually the front third of the eye, so it's the smaller part of the eye, it has a lot of structures. We have the iris, so the colored part of the eye that most people are familiar with. We have the lens. We have the cornea, so the clear part of the eye. So when people put on contact lenses, they'll put a contact lens over part of the cornea. And then we some have some fluid-filled structures. So these are the anterior chamber and the posterior chamber. I didn't know that there was fluid in front of the lens. I thought the lens was actually pressed up against the cornea. No, no, there's definitely. So that is the anterior chamber of the eye. And it's actually a very important fluid-filled space because when you do cataract surgery and any other procedures on the cornea, we actually need to be able to access that fluid-filled space in front of the eye. When I have like eye floaters, it's, I know it's like a common phenomenon. Is that in that fluid-filled sac in front of my lens? So floaters could be due to multiple reasons, but most likely in your case, given that if your eyes are healthy and you don't have any other uh, inflammation in your eye, which I'll get into some of the diseases that I'll talk about, where patients do actually get floaters, most likely what the floaters that you're experiencing are actually in the posterior segment of the eye. So now we're moving back to the 
behind of the eye, as we refer to it. And there we have the vitreous humor. This is a jelly structure that fills the eye. So if you think of the eye as a ball, a soccer ball, for example, you have the shell around it, and then you have the uh, retina, which is a very thin neurosensory structure that is responsible for our vision. And then within the retina, we have the macula, which is responsible for your central vision. And then the retina has rods and cones, and those are structures that pick up light. So the front part of the eye focuses the light to the back of the eye. So now we're talking about the back. And then the vitreous is the jelly part that fills up this hollow area. So where the air usually would be in a ball, that's where mm -hmm. the vitreous falls. In younger patients, this jelly, is it's a solid structure. Over time, as we age, it degenerates and it becomes more and more fluid and it breaks down into pieces. Whoa, when it really? breaks down, it starts creating these small pieces that we see as floaters. And that's actually what we notice. And as people get older, they'll notice more floaters. They'll notice bigger chunks of those pieces that have just liquefied over time. And then they'll notice those floaters more and more. In some cases, which is a big concern, if you see tons of floaters, like I'm talking about thousands to hundreds of thousands small floaters floating around like little bugs or actually parts of your vision are blacked out, that's a condition where we refer to as retinal detachment, which means that in most cases, the vitreous jelly that is normally attached to the retina has now liquefied too much and it's actually pulled on the retina and caused a little tear or hole. And then because of that, the retina separated from the back of the eye and that neurosensory part of the eye, which is responsible for your vision is lost and it's become ischemic because it can't get any blood supply and that's a concerning condition that's an emergency but in your case if you're seeing the odd floaters here and there probably not as much of a concern and pretty typical so are there any ways that my vitreous humor this jelly-like substance in the back two-thirds of my eye can break other than just degeneration over time like Let's say I get into a car accident and my head thrashes so violently that it like tears this jelly. Can that happen? Yeah, totally. Totally. So anything is like trauma. So like car accidents. Often we see kids who get hit in the eye when they were playing soccer or they were playing a game or they ran into something. Absolutely. Those things can actually speed up the process. If patients have longer eyes, um, so people who wear glasses for seeing far, they tend to have longer eyes and so they're at a higher risk of developing some of these pathologies just because of the retina just being a little bit thinner and more susceptible to having tears or breaks okay so so being nearsighted means that i have longer eyes yes and it means that i have a thinner retina in most cases yes okay if i'm nearsighted it means i'm i have myopia right yes that's correct okay. and I, I have the same thing okay nice cheers <laughs> <laughs> Okay, are there And you'll there be any... seeing an optometrist most likely for that. And there are the doctors that uh, see you and prescribe you your eyeglasses and then they, you work with an optician to get the right glasses for you. And optometrists are usually involved in that part of it. And let's say, you know, if you develop a retinal detachment or you need to be checked um, for any sort of thinning in the parts of your retina, then you get referred to an ophthalmologist. If I am insecure about the length of my eyeball, can I get some kind of plastic surgery to fix that and make it more spherical? No. So we don't do that. We actually, okay. you know, despite the advances that we have, we, we don't do that yet. But there's always 
other surgeries that we do, like things like LASIK that most people are very familiar with, mm-hmm. um, sort of these refractive surgeries that we perform that actually help by not changing the length of your eye, but actually changing the surface. So we talked about the cornea because the cornea is actually responsible for focusing the light and refracting the light so that it reaches the retina or the macula, which is the central part of vision. Refraction is the bending of light as it passes from one transparent substance into another, in this case from air into the cornea and then the lens. And so we can actually alter the shape of the cornea or the thickness of it or thinness of it in order to be able to help with the light being focused on the retina and where it gets focused. I thought the lens was the focuser of light. That's what I learned back in physics in high school. The lens is, and that's what most people think about. But the cornea actually makes a huge difference in terms of the refraction of light as well. Interesting. Okay. Yes. And if not anything, actually more than the lens. But the lens most people know about because that's the part that we do surgery on typically when patients get older or develop cataracts. And cataracts is one of the most common conditions. Uh Uh-huh. So the cornea has multiple kind of purposes, but ultimately, if you kind of think about it as the eye as being a window, you need to have the opening or the window, which has multiple structures. You have the the cornea, you have the clear fluid in the anterior chamber right after the cornea. You have the lens, which has to be clear. And then you have the fluid behind the lens, and then you have the vitreous humor. So all of those structures have to be clear. They have to help in directing light towards that main structure, which is the retina, for you to be able to see. Okay. So we've got a whole bunch of different layers all working together in symphony, in concert, to allow us to see things. Absolutely. I guess a lot can go wrong in the eye. There's a lot of structures that are working together, and if they're not working together properly, then we're going to have issues. And that brings us to the next part of our discussion, which is about the issues of the eye. It's a beautiful organ if I can call it that. It's it served me all my life. I've got two of them. I was lucky enough. And I just absolutely love my own eyes. I think they've done a great job so far, other than being a little bit too long. So what I want to know, I, I picked this up from a talk that you did uh, recently. You mentioned that this thing you study, it's called uveitis. We're going to dive real deep into it. Before you define it, though, I want you to tell me, why are cases of uveitis rising? So for the listeners, if you don't know what uveitis is, don't worry. We're going to get there in a second. But apparently, cases are rising, and I want you to know right away why that is so you can help yourself if you need. Go for it. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And short answer is, I don't think we know. Okay. The long answer that I'll get into is uveitis actually presents all across the age groups. You have pediatric patients as young as a few years old to all the way to older patient populations in their 60s, 70s, etc. that have this condition lifelong. As we've done more and more research, we're actually starting to recognize that this disease impacts a lot of the working age groups. So these are patients between the ages of 20 to 60 years old. And so why is that? Uveitis is an inflammatory condition. It may be our external exposures. It may be stressors. It may be the fact that we're just understanding the disease better. And so we're recognizing the patients that have this condition better. Mm. But the short answer is we technically don't know. We haven't really realized why this is happening. But we know that it's so important because those are the working age group. And so if they their vision gets impacted because of this condition or that they're not able to continue with their daily living or their social interactions, it's going to have a big impact on their lives. That's totally fine. We don't need 100% certainty about any answers today. So thank you for your honesty and your explanation there. What I do want to know is 
So you said uveitis is this inflammatory autoimmune disease. Where, where does uveitis factor into the eye anatomy that we just discussed? Okay, perfect. Excellent question. So I'm just actually going to start by defining the term uveitis because I think it actually it. will be useful for our listeners to know. Yeah, yeah. So we keep referring to the term uveitis. I actually haven't even defined uvea, which is an anatomical part of the eye. And it comes from the Latin word uva, and it actually refers to grape. This uvea is the middle pigmented vascular layer of the eye, and it includes the iris. So we talked about the iris. Everybody knows where the iris is located. It's a color part, beautiful part of the eye that everybody sees. And then some of the other structures that people don't see. So the ciliary body, which is actually behind the iris, and holds kind of the structures that hold the lens in place and also plays a lot of other important roles that we won't talk about, as well as the choroid. And the reason why the Latin term comes from uva, which means grape, is that in the earlier days when they were looking at the eye and the eye anatomy and they were trying to get to know the eye and the eye structures, this part of the eye, because of this vascularity of it, it actually looked like red grapes because okay. it's very vascular. And so that's where that name comes from. And so the choroid is actually super important because it's a part of the eye. It's in the posterior segment, it actually lines the entire eye. It's underneath the retina. It actually provides oxygen supply and supply to the, to the retina. So it plays an important role. So the uvea is a group of structures. Yes. Including... From what I recall, the iris, the ciliary body, and the choroid. Correct. So it's three different structures. Anything else we should know about other than those three are part of the uvea? No, that's absolutely correct. I'm actually curious to know, like, so the retina is at the back of the eye. It also wraps around, but then it just, like, stops? Yes. Like, there's no, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a part of the eye where we call the aura serrata, where you you see these kind of, like, divots where the retina is ending. And that's usually areas of thinning where breaks and tears and things like that happen. But that's that's actually the end of the retina, which actually comes all the way to the front part of the eye. Very cool. Yeah, I guess I I never thought about like the end of the retina. It kind of reminds me of that book where the sidewalk ends. I think Shel Silverstein. All all (laughs) these structures have some defined external parts, some envelope, like the lens is encapsulated, but the retina, it's like attached to the outside. So that just ends, as is the case with the choroid. Yes. Yes. So the okay. choroid, it's kind of an underrated structure, I always think, because it, it actually is one of the most important because it supplies nutrients. It actually regulates kind of temperature within the eye. So if you can imagine, like we get light in our eye and the, the retina is technically a colorless structure, right? So we talked about everything has to be clear for light to actually go through and it be absorbed and directly get to where it needs to and be picked up by the neurosensory tissue. And so the cord is actually the first kind of colored structure of the eye that absorbs light. And it really helps in actually regulating temperature of the retina. So it, you know, and it also helps with limiting reflection in the eye, uh, absorbing the light, and then potentially causing further harm. So it's kind of an underrated structure that most people don't think about, but it has really important roles. People always cite the eye as like, uh, 
evidence for the existence of God. I know this is like a religious podcast, but even just hearing you talk about the complexity of the eye, it doesn't make me necessarily think that there's a higher being, but it, it does make me question how and why the eye developed the way that it did. Like, do you ever think about that? Does it make sense to you, even as someone who studies the eye, like the way everything works together? Or does it, does it almost feel a little bit chance-like, a little bit random? Oh, goodness. This is such a <laughs> such an interesting question. You know, we learn about um, whenever we do like anatomy teachings. So in any subspecialty, actually, you kind of think about how different structures of the body develop and how the different cells interact with each other to either promote or inhibit the development of other structures beside them. To me, it seems it's a very sophisticated method. If someone gave me this task to say, design a structure that detects light, picks up vision, is able to do all of these activities, and also be located in this part of the face, in these bony structures, surrounded by fat and eyelids, and you are given, you know, these potential options of tissue structures that you can work with. I don't even think I could design it this well. So I think in a way it's almost by chance, but also in a very sophisticated way, how everything has really come together to work in such harmony and perfection. Cool. Very nice. Yeah. So the eye, like we've said a couple of times now, the eye is like embedded in the orbit, right? So it's literally just like sitting inside of our skull. So it isn't in the middle of our body, but it's definitely embedded right near our brain. So I know there's a lot of connections between the eye and the brain. Where am I going with all this? Well, I know sometimes, for example, a back pain can actually originate from like tightness in your leg muscles. I don't know if you've heard about this. So like sometimes you can have pain in, in uh, the tightness in one part of your body and then you feel pain elsewhere. Or like if you feel pain in the arm, sometimes it's actually a warning sign of a heart attack. So the body is, 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 is very integrated. All the different systems come together in unique ways. I'm curious to know, how is the eye or the visual system integrated with other bodily systems, if at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, for example, patients who have psoriasis, they have skin involvement. So I, I think, you know, most of the listeners are going to be familiar with the psoriasis as a disease. But psoriasis has skin manifestations. It also has joint manifestations. So patients will get psoriatic arthritis, but then they also has ocular manifestations. And so in a way, when we actually start treating and thinking about the disease, we can't just think about the eye in isolation. We have to think about the patient as a whole and all the different body systems involved. For example, patients who have sarcoidosis, which is another condition, uh, inflammatory condition, very difficult to treat. Again, some of the first signs that we see are actually in the back of the eye. Okay. But these patients then go on to develop various involvements throughout their entire body. The first signs of diabetes are actually in the back of the eye. And then patients then go on to then develop other complications of diabetes if it's not well managed. But really, it goes to show how the entire body and your eyes and your systemic health are so related to each other. That's fascinating. I didn't know the implication there in diabetes. That's huge. Okay. I feel like you're like starved for some more uveitis talk here. This is your bread and butter. I asked you before like why you got into ophthalmology. I'm equally curious to know why or how you've come to focus on uveitis. What drew you to uveitis and what do you think you can contribute to the field of ophthalmology by studying this? Yeah. So one thing I actually ended up leaving out is where does the itis come from? Mm -hmm. So itis is actually refers to inflammation. 
So the term uveitis is very fitting because the uvea we talked about and then the itis refers to inflammation. Okay. So this inflammatory set of conditions, actually, there's a wide range of them. There's like over 30 inflammatory diseases that all are kind of under this umbrella term of uveitis. You know, I, I remember I broke my glasses. I wear glasses all the time. I refuse mm-hmm. to wear contact lenses. Uh, maybe we can talk Same. about that in another podcast. But, you know, you see all the complications with contact lens use. By the way, I'm just going to put a plug in. Don't ever wash your contact lenses with tap water. Always use the proper solution to clean your contact lenses. Don't <laughs> swim you. with your contact lenses. Don't shower with your contact lenses. <laughs> Do not go to a hot tub with your contact lenses. And please... Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 with your contact lenses. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> And make sure that you dispose of your contacts, so whether you're using dailies, uh, whether you're using monthlies, etc. You dispose of them right at the time that you're supposed to. Okay, so th- that was just just a plug because you see so many of these issues with contact lens wear, and people show you know young. Uh, like students who are super uh-huh. high achieving and great intelligent and they develop corneal ulcers they develop an infection on their cornea Whoa. because of contact lens wear i refuse to wear contact lenses unless i really have to but that's a side note uh, <laughs> i like the strong opinions here on contact lenses i didn't know i was going to be getting this this is just bonus thank you um you know anything to kind of help our audience just be careful with their eye care glasses all the way i think it's great i mean there's also the whole like aesthetic aspect i I enjoy glasses just as an accessory yeah yeah exactly i i was saying that we i broke my glasses and i'm myopic and i couldn't see well for like a couple of days and I refused to wear contact lenses. And it, the impact that that had on me, it, it, it was mm-hmm. it was huge. Like I, I was feeling frustrated. I, I couldn't even kind of watch TV. I couldn't, you know, be at a proper distance from my computer. I had to bring everything closer. And so that in a way, it re- made me realize like how important it is what we do for our patients and how important your vision is in your day-to-day living and I feel like we take it for granted, but it's it's amazing the impact that it has on our like daily recognition of our loved one's faces, being able to socialize, recognize facial emotions, and any subtle changes in our vision or visual acuity or ability to see is going to have a major impact on our quality of life and functioning. And so why uveitis? is for all those reasons. Vision has such an impact on our day-to-day living. These patients suffer from not only vision impairment, but also associated systemic diseases that are associated with uveitis. And it's a really hard disease to treat. And these patients, they may be diagnosed when they're 17 or 18, and they may live with it for the rest of their life. Currently, we have treatments for them. For more information on that, I've linked to a recent webinar with Tina Felfelli, so check the link for that in the show notes. But we don't have the best way of always treating every single patient. So sometimes patients, we store them on treatment uh, and they may relapse or they may have recurrences of their disease and we have to constantly change the treatment for them in order to better suit their disease severity five years later or 10 years later um, since we first diagnosed them. And so it's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. There's new treatment options that are becoming available. And it just seemed like an area that has a lot of potential and it's still undergoing development. And so that's really what drew me to it was the patient impact as well as the research and 
potential developments in bettering treatment for patients? Is part of the trickiness with treatment that like the disease presents very differently in different people? Like, does it look the same across individuals or do we see like a huge amount of variability in its presentation? Most of the patients would have the same set of similar presentations, but depending on where the uveitis happens. So we talked about the front part of the eye and the back part of the eye. So uveitis, actually we divided based on where it happens. So some uveitis will happen in the anterior part of the eye, so the front part of the eye. Some will happen in the posterior segment of the eye. Some will happen in the middle. And then some will happen involving the entire eye. So depending on okay. where it happens, people will have different symptoms. And then also depending on the conditions that are causing it, there will also be different presentations. But in the most cases, Patients will have redness in their eyes. So these are like the most common presentations, redness, pain. They will have sensitivity to light, which is usually a good sign that this is uveitis. They'll have blurred vision. Sometimes they'll get those floaters yeah. and then they'll obviously experience some decline in vision. So usually by the time they have changes in their vision, by the time they come to us, that's probably a little bit already too late. Like some damage has already occurred and our goal is to try to calm down the eye, decrease the inflammation, and then try to bring that vision back and hopefully as much as we can with treatment. Mm -hmm. Here's a question, maybe a bit out of left field. If you were to suffer brain damage, knock on wood, at some point in your life, either leading to you becoming blind or deaf, which would you prefer if you had the choice, knowing what you know. Oh my goodness. Hopefully neither. Of course, of course. <laughs> hopefully neither. Yes. I would say uh, hearing loss. And the reason for that being is that with my eyes, I would be able to recover the fact that I can somehow communicate with people still by reading their lips or use sign language or be able to write and read. Whereas with losing my vision, there's a lot of things that I don't think my hearing could compensate for. And so I think that for that reason, I would choose hearing loss over vision loss. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm detecting a, a little bit of bias, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite anatomical structure of the eye and why? Hmm, that's a good question. Applying for residency, you kind of get asked all these like questions that are outside of the box. And that's mm -hmm. such an outside of the box question. What would I pick? Probably the macula. Okay. Tell me a bit more about the macula. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of talked about the macula, but the macula is just part of the retina and it's actually the most sensitive part and it's very light sensitive. It's actually responsible for your central vision. Okay. Uh, and then there's like these photoreceptors in the retina. We call them rods and cones. And then they're actually responsible for transmitting the light rays that come into the eye and then sending it to the brain. So we kind of talked about the connection between the eye and the brain and being in such close proximity with the, with the brain. If your macula is impaired, you lose your ability to see like your central vision or ability to focus on something. So if I look at somebody's face and my macula is not functioning well, I'll actually see kind of blurred lines or I'll see kind of black spots right in the middle of their face. And so that's a horrible thing. And it's not something that we want for any of our patients. And we always try to treat those diseases. But I would say the macula 
because it's so important and that's responsible for our typical you know term that we refer to 2020 vision that perfect vision that we aim for is for the macula i do have a love-hate relationship with the macula because it you know if it goes uh if it gets diseased or there's pathologies that affect the macula we can have such detrimental impacts on our patient's uh, vision but uh-huh. if it's functioning well and our patients have 2020 vision i'm the happiest person in the world because i know that my patients are happy and so I would say the macula is my is my favorite part of the eye because it's what I like aim for every day when we're trying to better a patient's vision is to make sure that the macula is functioning well. Right. So like macula uh, can't live with it, can't live without it. Exactly. Kind of the vibe. Yeah. There are two things that, that I want to say. So macula, I'm assuming it's related to macular degeneration, the degeneration of the macula. Yeah. So that's actually one of the degenerative diseases that is actually age-related that happens okay. in the macula. It's actually a leading cause of permanent vision loss for patients that are older, so 50, 50 years old or older. Okay. And it's a degenerative disease and we have treatments for it, but in most cases we can't prevent it from happening. There are certain things that people can do like not smoke, not get exposed to UV light, certain vitamins that they can take, but to some extent it can be hereditary. And so we try to treat it, but it happens in most people over the ages of, age of 50 years old. You mentioned exposure to UV light. Is that in any way related to UV-itis? No, it is not. It is not. I know some people will think of that, but it is not. Okay. But I see I, I see a, how you would think that. It's, you know, it's okay. <laughs> we don't have the visuals. Uveitis is spelt U V E I T I S. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It isn't just the capital U, capital V-itis. No. Um, the second thing <laughs> I wanted to say, just to push back a little bit, because I do have a little bit of knowledge about eye anatomy from my undergrad studies. You said the macula is the back part, the central part of the retina, where you have the most precise vision. I learned that there's another structure inside of the macula called the fovea. Absolutely. Which we haven't mentioned yes. yet. Yes, So we can't leave the fovea out of the discussion because you're giving the macula all of the attention. Okay, so excellent. Wow. We were recruiting in ophthalmology, if you're interested. So fovea, exactly <laughs> like you said. So if you actually look at an eye anatomy, uh, a photo of it, it's the central pit that happens in the macula. And that's actually the part of the macula that only contains cone cells. And these are responsible for our color vision or ability to see really fine detail. Okay. okay. And so that aspect of fovea makes it so important. So when we talk about the macula, we talk about the surrounding areas of the fovea and the fovea itself. So they both okay. kind of go hand in hand. Got it. I just wanted to give the fovea the airtime it deserves. Absolutely. And now I, <laughs> now I feel confident rounding off the show. So I have one more question for you. Yes. What were you put on this earth to do? What do you think your biggest contribution to the world could be on a big or small scale? Oh my goodness, such a philosophical question. I like to think that we have all a collective role in a bigger scheme of things. I like to think that I'm part of a bigger purpose whether that's research, life isn't about research, but the whole point of research is for kind of bettering humanity and understanding of diseases and like bettering patients, bettering our own lives, our ability to function, whether that's medicine, so treating kind of patients on a more immediate basis, day-to-day care and making their lives better, 
whether that's having better interactions with my colleagues and mentoring people, helping others achieve their academic goals, and playing a positive role model for others, all of those collectively sum up the purpose that I'm going to fill throughout my career and my life. And that's part of a bigger kind of purpose that everybody else is also contributing to. So the people I'm going to impact are also going to have a role doing the same thing or something different to then contribute back to society and humanity as a whole. So I would say I don't think there's a single purpose in life or single purpose that I was designated to do. I think it's a collection of both academic, your personal, your mentorship, your research and your passions. I am so happy that I found something I really enjoy doing. I like the research that I do. I like the patients that I see. I like the colleagues that I work with. I like the field that I study. And I'm really happy that I was able to find that perfect fit for me. I'm happy that I was able to find you for the show. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it's been great. It's, it's, it's been really great. And I guess I'm not surprised with your answer in that you, you kind of have this, this multifaceted purpose, given that you are currently pursuing a multifaceted career as both researcher and clinician. So at least there's consistency there. And I appreciate that. All right. It has been an absolute pleasure, Tina, talking to you today. Such delightful conversation. And I learned a lot about the eye more than I had already known before. I'm super stoked about the choroid and, of course, the fovea and everything in between, which actually is not that many things. I should have said the lens and the fovea because there's a lot more in between those two things. Anyways, thank you so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope that you have an awesome rest of your day. Thank you. All the pressure is on mine, and thank you for organizing this. You are very welcome. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.